You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Judson Brewer, who is a professor at Brown University. Uh, he's also the director of research and innovation at their Mindfulness Center. He teaches in the School of Public Health. He teaches in the medical school. He's also an entrepreneur, and he started a company called Mind Sciences a couple years ago, which has morphed into and merged with ShareCare, which offers a variety of apps that help with developing skills around mindfulness and managing your distraction. He's got apps called Unwinding Anxiety, Craving to Quit, Eat Right Now. And of course, the reason why you're here, you're also the author of a couple books. Most recently, this book called Unwinding Anxiety. New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. And this was preceded by, and I think built on, this book called The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked on and How We Can Break Bad Habits. Welcome, Judd. Thanks for having me. Now, I noticed that you dedicated your latest book to an Amazon addict. <laughs> I have to plead guilty that, although while I was reading the book, I kept wondering whether or not my addiction to books actually counted as as, as an addiction. I, I think we were stretching the, the metaphor a little bit. But look, I found your work fascinating because you're taking this concept of operant conditioning right, of reward-based learning, which is a very well-known area of research, right? I mean, it, it goes back to Skinner and even before Skinner. And I think uh, a lot of people- would, 1800s, I think. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would say that this lies kind of, you know, at the root of a lot of good things and bad things in our lives, including addiction, including a lot of the addictions and bad habits that you talk about. But I think that the response that you offer to try and help manage those things in our lives, like addictions, is different. So rather than trying to, I guess, exert willpower and use grit, right, all of which are approaches that are, I think, related to CBT, CBT cognitive behavioral therapy in many ways, your approach is related to, but, but it's different. You're really trying to co-opt or kind of leverage the learning system and while this sounds kind of new, it's really fundamentally rooted in old approaches like like Buddhism. Yeah, it's interesting. They, a lot of this stemmed from my own struggles with helping my patients with addictions or habit change and, and even anxiety. You know, it's like the best medications we have, the number needed to treat, which is a quick and dirty number of how well they work, is 5.2. So one in five one in five, yes, you heard that correctly, patients shows a significant reduction in symptoms when they use a medication. So I basically play the medication lottery whenever I'm prescribing medication. I don't know which of my patients is going to benefit. And then I also don't know what to do with the other four. I'd also been really struggling to help my patients with addictions, whether it's smoking cessation where it's the five A's and you, you like advise somebody to quit, give them some medication to help them with the withdrawal symptoms, but basically saying, good luck and <laughs> let me know how it goes. This willpower piece has been around for thou you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. And the idea that it's still the dominant paradigm when there's no neuroscience that backs it up 
is interesting. I mean, I think it gives a heuristic for us as humans to think that we've got control, more control than we probably have. But when it comes to pragmatic behavior change, I've got to, whether somebody gets into an esoteric debate about willpower or not, I got to help my patients quit smoking. And so there was this need to really look at the literature and really figure out what we'd missed and how we can leverage what we know. As a neuroscientist, I was looking at how brains learn behaviors. I had happened to start meditating in medical school. And so I'd been learning some of this Buddhist psychology. And this, you know, I had a series of aha moments where I was like, oh, they were talking about operant conditioning before paper was invented. And they actually said, this is the heart of the problem. You know, modern scientists agree with the ancient Buddhist psychologists. Like this is where the money is. You know, you can even say this is what the Buddha was contemplating on the night of his enlightenment. You know, it's like this is really important. So why not start there? And it's actually worked pretty well for us. You know, we've gotten five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking cessation. We've got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And with anxiety, you know, this is with apps, we've gotten a 67% reduction in anxiety in people with generalized anxiety disorder, right? So that number needed to treat is 1.6 as compared to the 5.2 out there with medications. So it's been a wild ride over the last couple of decades, but I have to say it puts my faith in like, say, looking at neuroscience, you know, and saying, let's understand how the mind works so that we can work with the mind it's just increased it because all the evidence just keeps stacking up over and over and over. And we can look at this from an outcomes perspective. We can look at this from a mechanistic perspective. We've even looked at, at brain changes, you know, using fMRI studies and it's all lines up and it's a beautiful confirmation of what the Buddhist psychologists were talking about 2,500 years ago. Right now, look, you quote Buddhist texts in your, in your books, on a bunch of different occasions. And, you know, I think it's a little bit weird because when you're studying medicine, right? I mean, no one is looking at Galen, right? Or Vesalius or, you know, any of those guys, right? We've moved past them, right? And even in psychology, right? I mean, you're typically going to be reading the most recent journal articles and you're not going to actually go back and read Skinner's original works, right? You know, there are some references and some footnotes. So science is always about kind of the, the latest thing. So, it was outside of your medical research and outside of your, your PhD research that you encountered these texts. I mean, aren't these issues that we are dealing with? I mean, they're kind of timeless issues, right? What's changed is the science. So, I mean, how do you think about combining ancient questions and ancient solutions with kind of modern research approaches? Well, I'm a pragmatist, you know, and I think that reading the latest and greatest within a field that's not where innovation happens you know it's when you think outside of the box and so it just so happened not that i'm smarter than anybody else but it just so happened that i was looking at these buddhist psychology and i was looking using it to kind of understand my own mind and there i was starting to see connections with some of the modern science right with the reward-based learning that made a lot of sense. And so I started following those leads, you know, just pragmatically like, oh, could this help people with alcohol and cocaine use? You know, I did my first study in residency and I was like, wow, it works pretty well. Surprising. Let's do another study. And I was just kind of following the breadcrumbs, the, the logical next steps where it's like, okay, let's try this with smoking. Wow. Five times the quit rates. Wow. Let's look at the mechanism. Okay. It does line up with the mechanisms of reinforcement learning. Okay. Let's look at the neural mechanisms. So 
it all started from just kind of not assuming that whatever literature out there is the best because the literature out there hasn't helped make any paradigm shifts with addiction or habit change treatment. If you look at obesity, the calories in calories out formula has been around forever. I learned it in medical school. People learned it decades before me. People are still learning it. It's true, but it's not how you lose weight. And so telling people to eat salad instead of cake, you can tell them until you're blue in the face. That's not how behavior change happens. And so looking at the ancient stuff, but also looking at, you know, okay, how does this line up with what is consistent, right? But also the piece that I found really helpful was working with my patients in my clinic. What are they struggling with? What language are they using? Why is willpower failing for them? You know, what is it about it? You know, and then to the point where it's like, okay, let's place that completely off to the side because, you know, the prefrontal cortex is the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed. Okay. So we can't trust it to, even if we have some willpower, some Spocky and like, you know, willpower, some Vulcan prefrontal cortex. So it's really about, okay, what's pragmatic, what's helpful, and what's mechanistic, and how can we test this to show that it works from an evidence perspective, like clinical outcomes perspective, and then how can we understand the mechanism to make sure that we can hone it and even personalize it? That's the approach that we've been taking. It's just very pragmatic. Well, I want to dig into this reward-based processing, right? I mean, it's evolved for a reason, right? It helps us to navigate the landscape. It helps us to kind of learn from the environment, and the system that we have presumably is about as good as it can be, right? If you think about the millions of years that have gone into crafting this, this system of learning, but it's obviously got some weak links. And I think you talk about how modern society has kind of, kind of hijacked it. Now, of course, this system gave rise to all sorts of errors throughout our history, but you know, what is it about this system that makes it vulnerable to being kind of hijacked, right? Because you would think that if something is harmful, right, then that harm would ultimately reinforce the reward circuitry in such a way that you would avoid it going forward. But the problem here is that you're getting rewards for things that don't actually benefit you. So how is it possible that there could be this disconnect between the reward that you subjectively experience and the kind of long-term consequences that you experience both physically and, and psychologically? So I think it's helpful to think about, and I like that you use the word reward because our brains have the word that we would use is like, oh, this is rewarding. This feels good is different than what our brains use it for. So let's start there. So let's say this system is set up to help us remember where food is, right? So in three core elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result or a reward from a brain perspective. So let's say that our ancient ancestors are foraging for food. They didn't have refrigerators, so they had to remember where it was. So they find some food. There's the trigger. They eat the food. There's the behavior. And then the result is their stomach sends this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. Importantly, this dopamine firing shifts from that receipt of what they should learn, the receipt of the reward, to anticipation. So next time they're in the proverbial cave, when they're hungry, their brain says, hey, go get some food. So there's this anticipation. And this is really important because a craving is not pleasant. It's not designed to be pleasant. It's designed to get us off our butts to go get something. 
Okay. So there's no reward in the unpleasant quality of a craving. It says, do this. And my patients confirm this all the time. You know, when they're chasing the cocaine, when they're on a three-day cocaine bender, they're chasing that high and typically feeling paranoid in the process. You know, if somebody's addicted to alcohol, they're trying to get, have that eye opener to ward off the hangover. Heroin, same thing, all these things. So if you look in modern day, humans have refined substances, which in the past weren't addictive. So coca leaves are not addictive. People could chew them and they would help them with altitude from what I understand, you know, and quote unquote, coca leaves were used responsibly because you didn't have to worry about getting addicted. And then somebody's like, hey, we can make this into a white powder and make it very, very addictive. If you look at heroin, opium, you know, like all these things that in modern day, we're really good at refining substances to make them really hijack that dopamine system so that we get sucked into this process. That's no longer rewarding. That's addiction. The simple definition I learned in residency was continued use despite adverse consequences. So if we look at habit formation, it's really helpful for us to survive. If we had to relearn everything every day, we'd be exhausted by breakfast. So the habit piece, still helpful, was helpful, still helpful, will always be helpful. But then people say, oh, we can make money off of this, basically. It's like you could tap into that, whether it's social media, whether it's a substance, whether it's pointing out to people that they need to buy this or that because they would feel better if they do. All of that's based on that excitement quality or the feeling of a lack. None of that is actually rewarding from a feeling tone, from a pleasantness perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then the reward that one subjectively experiences is a short-term reward, right? It's, it's not a long-term reward, right? It's the alleviation of the craving. And I think you make the point that the reward system, it's kind of like a muscle. And every time you exercise or take action, right, which is in accordance with this habit loop, what you're doing is you're kind of reinforcing this muscle in the same way that, you know, every time you do a push up or a pull up. So the habit then I guess creates a, a feedback loop. So the more you kind of satisfy the craving, the more the craving is likely to recur. Yes. Think of it as poison ivy. So it's itchy. We want to scratch. We scratch, we get that brief relief and it keeps the poison ivy around for longer. Right. It made me think a lot about kind of search algorithms that we try to develop and artificial intelligence, right? Where oftentimes if you follow a very greedy algorithm, right? You say, okay, I'm just going to like, you know, try to go in the direction of the destination. And then you keep hitting a wall, right? Because if the algorithm is not smart enough to know that it kind of has to, you know, backtrack and kind of go around the obstacle, then it will never actually get there. So a lot of the therapies that have been developed have been built around making people focus on kind of the long term, right? To exercise their prefrontal cortex and think in terms of long-term planning and to override their short-term impulses and so forth. And that, you know, invokes the system one versus system two thinking of Kahneman and, and Tversky. So is there anything wrong with that approach just to say, I mean, it's built on this idea of figuring out what your long-term goals are, but then it kind of requires that you, you exercise this continual oversight, right? And that this impulse will always be there and you just have to continually override it. That sounds just as exhausting, right? As, you know, having to relearn every day, doesn't it? 
Yes. And so if we could override them, if we all could override them, my clinical practice would look very different. You know, I could just tell my patients to stop smoking and they would stop smoking, you know, well, thank you, doc. And it'd be a one visit, you know, stop overeating, stop worrying. People aren't smoking because they consciously think that, you know, smoking is good for them, right? In the long term. So we don't need, don't need to actually convince them that smoke, you know, if they come to your clinic, they presumably already know that, that this is something that's bad for them. Yes, they do. So on top of the willpower being more myth and muscle problem is this very well-known phenomenon called delayed discounting. And Warren Bickle and others have researched this extensively. And it basically means that long-term reward is going to be discounted relative to a short-term reward. So you know, for example, if, if I say, hey, I'll give you $10 today or $11 next week, it's actually a pretty good interest rate if you think of it that way over a course of a week getting what 10% or whatever. But you could be like, well, this guy, you know, maybe he'll flake out. I don't know if I'm going to get $11 next week. I don't know if I'll be alive next week. That's what our brain's thinking, you know, is I'm going to go with the sure thing. So we can tell ourselves, well, I need to quit smoking because I might get cancer in 20 years. And our brains just, they just don't compute because they're like 20 years. What does 20 years mean? <laughs> Our brains say, I need food now. And I've got a nicotine addiction and I, I'm feeling itchy and urgy because I've got a deficit of nicotine right now. I'm going to smoke that cigarette. And that's what happens. Whether it's a cigarette, whether it's food with stress eating, whether it's any of these things, you know. So think of it this way our feeling body is much stronger than our thinking brain. So we can think something's bad for me, but that's not going to help. In theory, we think that that should help us change behavior, but it doesn't. That's not how our brains work. Right. And I think you talk about this idea of, you know, life history or the way in which you have been kind of rewarding yourself over time becomes kind of so almost hardwired that, you know, it's difficult to dislodge. And I was thinking about this in terms of, you know, training data in machine learning, right? Because we use the same word, right? We talk about bias and you say, this is really your reward system is real in the present and encapsulates kind of the, the legacy of your life history, right? And again, the reason why I was thinking about this in, in relation to machine learning is that you take the same algorithm and you feed it different training data and it's going to make decisions in a very, very different way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's key. If we only feed it the same data and that's what a habit's about, then we're, of course, it's going to say, well, I'll keep doing the same thing. So how, and I want to get into all the other types of addictions besides smoking and alcohol, but I think you've got sort of a, a secret, secret weapon, right? And we can think of it as, as mindfulness, but more generally, I think your secret weapon is curiosity and paying attention. And I think this is a very optimistic approach. It's kind of like, you know, the truth will set you free, but it's not so much the, the hypothetical truth, right? That, oh yeah, smoking is bad for you, but it's, it's this really kind of paying attention and understanding the reward mechanism, right? So becoming like a little bit of a psychologist or becoming a little bit of a scientist and then taking that scientific approach with a little bit of background knowledge and then, you know, observing yourself in the day to day through this scientific lens is almost enough in and of itself to jumpstart some kind of change, right? I see this as a very philosophical approach, right? Philosophers always believe that truth and 
curiosity and you know paying attention is always going to yield good things. But that seems so simple, right? Like, why is it so difficult for people? Is it that people find it difficult to pay attention? Or is it that when they are paying attention, they don't know what it is that they're supposed to be looking for? I would say it's both. And just highlighting what you're talking about, the the simple, you know, what was it Occam's razor, the parsimony, you know, the simplest answer is usually the right one. The more research that I've done, the simpler the answer has actually gotten. And it's actually distilled down to, you know, if you look at these reinforcement learning models, and if you look at the math behind them, there's an error term. And that error term is critically dependent upon one thing, which is awareness. So mindfulness can be this fuzzy, you know, concept. This is the Rescorla Rescorla Wagner formula. Yeah. Let's not even use the word mindfulness. Let's talk about awareness and, and the attitude of curiosity. So we can be aware of something and we could be judging it right? We can have a bi- bring a bias to it, or we can try to just be aware of it in an unbiased way. And I th- think of curiosity as the, the easiest way to, to really be aware of something in an unbiased way. It's like, oh, what is actually true as compared to, oh, I know what this is. And if you take that curiosity and you apply it to these Rescorla-Wagner models, this is reinforcement learning. The only way to change a behavior is through two things. The first one is what's called a positive prediction error. Let's use a concrete example. So let's say a new bakery opens up in my neighborhood. And let's say I've my brain has stored a reward value for like how good chocolate cake is. If I go in that bakery and I eat their chocolate cake and it's the best chocolate cake I've ever had, I get what's called a positive prediction error, meaning it's better than expected. And that sets off this cascade of firing in my brain that says, remember this, go back there again, because this was rewarding. It's more rewarding than expected, right? I have to pay attention for my brain to register that. If I'm not paying attention when I eat the cake, I won't learn it. I won't get that positive prediction error. The other way that we learn is called a negative prediction error. If I go in there and eat the cake, I'm like, meh, not very good. I get a negative prediction error. And it says, this is worse than expected. And I also learn that way. That also is critically dependent upon awareness. That's how behavior changes. I'll give you a concrete example. My lab just published a paper on this where we embedded basically an awareness tool into our Eat Right Now app where we had people pay attention as they were overeating or as they were eating junk food or whatever. And we could measure the change in reward value as they got that negative prediction error because overeating doesn't feel good. But people tend not, they ignore it. They don't pay attention to it. So we said, let's help you pay attention. You know, simple steps like, what's it feel like? How's your, you know, all this short exercise that goes with it. Within 10 to 15 times of somebody using this craving tool. Now, this is, of course, within the context of this larger training program. But 10 to 15 times, we see that that reward value drops below zero. Below zero. Their behavior changes within 10 to 15 times of using this. So, it makes sense, evolutionarily speaking. We don't have time to get chased by the saber-toothed tiger 20 times to realize that it's dangerous. We have to learn it pretty quickly. And if we pay attention, we can actually learn pretty quickly from overeating that it doesn't feel very good. So this is back to this feeling body being very, very strong. Our bodies are really wise. They'll tell us the answer. Our brains, oh, I shouldn't overeat. I shouldn't overeat. We can do that for 20 years and it's not going to change behavior. It'll actually just set up another habit loop where oh, I'm a terrible person because I overate when I shouldn't have, you know? And so we set up these habit loops upon habit loops of self-judgment and blame and shame and guilt and all of this stuff. 
which also make us overeat more because we eat to soothe ourselves. <laughs> so you set up habit loops upon the habit loops. You can see these fractals happening here. But if you just simply bring in awareness, you get this negative prediction error. Your brain says, yeah, it's not that great. We've done the same thing with smoking with my patients. I tell them to smoke and they're like, my doc told me to smoke. What's going on? And I say, pay attention when you smoke. And not a single patient has ever come back and says, doc, thank you. I never realized how great cigarettes taste. You know, what they come back and say is, how did I not realize this tastes like crap? I've been smoking for, I had a guy that was smoking for 40 years, right? So he had, we'd calculated this out. He had reinforced this habit loop 293,000 times. And he comes back and he says, how did I not notice that this is crappy? And that negative prediction error helped him quit smoking. No willpower in any of that, just awareness. So that's kind of the, the not so secret ingredient that nobody is adding to their treatments. So the other piece here is, so you're saying, are they not paying attention? Yes, they're not paying attention because it's a habit. So we have to help them say, hey, pay attention. What's the cigarette taste like? What's it smell like? When you overeat, what does your stomach feel like? What is it, you know, what's your emotional state afterwards? But the other piece is they have to line up the cause and effect. So reward-based learning is based on how rewarding something is. So they have to line up behavior and reward or lack of reward. So if they don't see, oh, overeating made me feel crappy, they're not going to change the behavior. But if we can help them say, hey, this is how this habit loop works. When you overeat, pay attention. Then their brain lines all of that up so that they can really make that connection. And those two combination of awareness plus knowing that very, very simple concept, that's where we're getting, you know, 40% reduction in craving related eating, you know, with our eat right now app with an app, you know, we're getting that 67% reduction in anxiety with our unwinding anxiety app, like an app. Mm -hmm. Now this is not directed attention, right? You're not saying pay attention to all the negative aspects, right? Because if you say, Hey, pay attention to how, this tastes like crap, then people will see it tastes like crap. But if you said, pay attention to how wonderful it tastes, like, would they come back to you and say it tastes wonderful? I mean, you, you give them a, a neutral instruction. We give them a neutral instruction and that's really, I'm glad you pick up on that. That's really important because introducing a bias is just going to eventually peter out where it's going to be a biased system and our brain's going to say, you know, it's, it's not really how I experience it. The only thing that we're trying to do is help people truly experience things as they are. So we say, pay attention to all of it. For a lot of people, they realize, wow, dark chocolate tastes really, really good. I really didn't notice the nuance of it. And I can eat just a few squares and I'm satisfied. I call this the pleasure plateau where, you know, it's like they eat a little bit and then eventually the the reward piece goes down because they've had enough. And if they stop there, they actually feel better than if they keep eating. They go, I think of it as going off the cliff of overindulgence. So here it's really about just bringing awareness in and seeing, you know, like, what am I getting from this? That's what it distills down to is that that simple question. Chocolate's still going to taste good. It might even taste better if you pay attention. Ice cream still going to taste good, but instead of anticipating that next lick or the next bite, you know, we're like, oh, I want more, which doesn't feel good. We can just notice, like savor the flavor, like, oh, this is really good. And then we can ask ourselves, have I had enough? Right? Because often we don't ask that we're already into the next bite because our brain is saying, do it, do it, do it. That's a habit. We can break that habit simply through paying attention. Yeah. I interviewed Mark Schatzker recently who writes about 
kind of food engineering and how food is, you know, engineered in some ways, right? But clearly it's it's a complementary response, right? There's the this the signal which is, you know, designed in a particular way and then there's the the response that we have and and you know, you can adjust the signal or you can adjust the the response, but this is something that presumably only humans can do. So, you know, you can't coach a dog to right? Stop overeating. Um, you can't coach uh, a rat to stop, you know, pushing that, that lever, right? It gives them the cocaine high. So, you know, a lot of people think that humans are uniquely vulnerable to things like, like addictions. But I think what you're saying is that humans actually are uniquely capable of extracting themselves from these addictions through this form of, of cognition, this form of attentiveness, right? That animals simply won't have. You would actually have to start putting capsicum or something into the food to make them, you know, stop eating it. Yeah. So if you look at animals in the wild, they don't suffer from diabetes. Let's just put it that way. Because uh, their systems are regulated within this beautiful natural system. We are uniquely capable of designing products because they're not it's not even food you know like i love the the onion do you know that the satirical journal the onion they had a headline that says doritos celebrates its one millionth ingredient <laughs> you know? so these are food-like objects it's not really food so we're uniquely capable of designing these things you know designed for addiction and we're also because we can design them we can also learn how to work with them you know and and it's I would say, you know, who knows how many engineers employed by these food companies, by social media companies, by, you know, Silicon Valley, whatever, for this attention economy. They want to get our attention. It's very valuable. And the best way to work with that is to learn how our minds work so that we can, because the process is the same, whether it's food or social media. The process is the same. If we can see and really see what we're getting from it, then we can learn to consume in moderation without forcing ourselves to like lock our phones in our trunk when we're driving or do, you know, go through these really extreme behavioral ways to kind of force ourselves not to do things. We don't have to do that. It really comes back to like, how can we just leverage the power of our minds, which is super powerful. Well, yeah, you mentioned kind of changing the environment as one approach. So you talk about willpower as an approach. You talk about kind of changing the environment, like just kind of staying away from, you know, don't have any donuts in the house, so to speak. And, you know, while those I think are certainly tools in the toolbox, you say they're, they're insufficient. You also mentioned uh, substitution as an alternative, like replace bad habit with a good habit, right? So, you know, if you have a addiction to social media, you know, replace it with an addiction to jogging or something like this. And why isn't this what you're advocating? I mean, isn't this sort of another version of, you know, the, the bigger, better offer, right? Because you are kind of saying that curiosity provides you with rewards, right? And you're kind of launching a new kind of habit loop. And this new habit loop is one where you pay attention and then you, you discover some interesting truth. And then, you know, you get a little dopamine reward from that discovery, right? I mean, isn't, isn't this, aren't you going to become addicted to, I don't know, self-knowledge, <laughs> you know, addicted to 
to curiosity. I mean, I know, I know you shouldn't use the word addiction if it's not harmful, but you know, how is this not just a, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say not just, but isn't this sort of a, a way of just replacing a harmful habit loop with a, with a helpful habit loop? Yeah. So to put this in context, you know, and I, and I write about these three steps that we've kind of been observing over the years with my patients going through these programs in my clinic or in my research studies. And that the first step is kind of mapping out a habit loop. The second step is really looking at that reward value by asking, what am I getting from this? And if we become disenchanted with the old behavior, it opens up space for what I call, as you alluded to, the bigger, better offer. And so there are kind of bigger, better offers, and then there are really bigger, better offers. And you're touching on that. So we could, so for example, if I have a patient who has a substance use addiction, let's say cocaine or something like that, and they replace it with, you know, when I have an urge to use cocaine, I'm just going to exercise. I'm going to go for a run, ride my bike, whatever. So they replace it with something that is generally healthier and more socially acceptable. The problem there is that every time they have an urge, they can't, they, you know, you can easily overexercise, for example, you know, it's like, okay, I got to go out for another run, another ride. And if they get injured, say from overuse, like an overuse injury, then their brain says, well, you did this as a substitution. And so it goes back to the old habit because we haven't actually conquered the habit loop itself. So that's a, I think of that as a kind of better offer. It's certainly better than using cocaine. But ultimately, if we could find something that helps us step out of that habit loop and becomes always available, then that's the biggest, bestest offer. <laughs> and this is where curiosity comes in. So curiosity can help us in all of these steps. So it can help us be curious, like, oh, what's this habit loop? And we can map it out. It can help us start to see how unrewarding the old behavior is like, oh, you know, what am I getting from this? And then it can also it in itself form this new habit that is hopefully it's it's addictive in a non-addictive way. And I say this because with addictions, there tends to be this contracted, closed down urgency that says, I have to get this. And actually, if you look scientifically at curiosity, I wrote a whole chapter on this in the Unwinning Anxiety book. There are two types of curiosity. One is deprivation curiosity and one is interest curiosity. So deprivation curiosity has that itchy, urgy. When you want to click on that link, you know, what yeah. people are yeah. saying about, you know, Ukraine, you know, and you want to click yeah. on that, right? Yeah. Notice how the news headlines are all set up for deprivation yeah. curiosity. So they'll, there is clickbait, right? And so this is where we're out on a date with somebody new and suddenly, you know, we're picking up our phone because we have to know something, you know, that's continued use despite adverse consequences that that date might not go as well if our partner is saying like this guy's addicted to his phone so that deprivation curiosity is not you know certainly having information is helpful for survival that's probably where that system is set up think of information as food for our brain right so when we're hungry our stomach says go get some food when we don't know the answer to something think of our ancestors you hear a rustling in the bushes we got to go get that information and figure out if it's our family member goofing around or if it's a lion waiting to pounce on us right so information is helpful for survival but it can also be in you know, we can serve it up at any time any day any hour through you know these as cornell west puts it our weapons of mass distraction through our phones so that that's where it's not helpful but if you look at interest curiosity this is what gets really interesting haha -ha, is that 
when we, that close down quality that even can come with a type of curiosity, like, it's, oh, I have to get this. Same thing with a craving. I have to get some food. I have to smoke a cigarette. That craving, we can turn, we can go, oh no, I have to have a cigarette. Or we can flip that with interest heroes and go, oh, what does this craving feel like right now in my body? And so here we go to the source. Like, what is it that's driving me to do this? And what feels better? We've actually done studies of this in my lab. Craving doesn't feel nearly as good as curiosity, right? Craving feels closed down. It says, do this. Curiosity says, you know, instead of going, oh, no, I have to get this. Curiosity says, oh, what is this? And so that becomes the, you think of it as the obstacle becomes the way where when we have a craving, we can turn toward that with curiosity. It already feels better. It opens us up and it helps us start getting, you could think of it as, I don't even use the word addiction there, but we're drawn more into being curious because it's very rewarding. It's not addictive in the sense that like the more we pay attention, I haven't seen that to be a problem. <laughs> you know, it's, There are no adverse consequences to being curious, you know, all cat jokes aside, Curiosity is really helpful for survival, especially if we can stay open-minded for everything, you know, in a conversation, in a meeting with our spouse, with our partner, with our kids, you know, curiosity is super helpful. And so there, that is the bigger, better offer that doesn't have side effects. You know, it's always available, all that stuff. So that's very different than just a substitution with exercise for alcohol, for example. Now, look, you teach public health, so I was wondering if you'd comment on what you think the magnitude of these different addictive problems are. I mean, look, here in San Francisco, where I live, people died of drug overdoses than of COVID last year. So that's a you know serious problem. More people will die of cigarette smoking this decade than of COVID easily in the U.S., and it's going to keep on going. And so in terms of obvious fatal consequences, those are some pretty serious addictions. But when you think about distraction you think about kind of apps i mean i know people that spend literally every waking moment on one app or another and they're not fulfilled i don't think in any meaningful way by by most of them they'll be on dating apps and swipe for hours without ever setting up any dates you know they'll be on stock apps and and swiping on them and just you know losing all their money to cryptocurrencies and and then they'll be on social media apps and and then the whole day is shot and then they, they got to go to an app to buy food because cooking requires effort and, you know, swiping doesn't. So like if we think about the magnitude of the types of addictions out there, you know, which problem do you think we really need to be uh, addressing as parents and as, uh, as teachers, public health professionals and so forth? I would say all of them. And I say that because you can actually apply awareness to any of these problems. And so if you think of social media, for example, I think of it as kind of like the slow burn. It's like cigarettes. So, wait, so this is not domain. So this is not domain specific. So people who like, so the thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is that, you know, they all like most of them smoke, right? So they're not taking the remediation in the one domain and kind of moving it. Although I think that's the, the, the idea behind it is you're supposed to you know, move it across. You're saying this is not, this is domain neutral. You learn how to observe in one domain. You're almost inevitably going to start observing these things in other domains. You can. So a habit is a habit is a habit, whether it's cigarettes, cocaine, food, social media, alcohol, they all follow that same mechanism. And I've been pleasantly surprised 
where we take one domain and people generalize that that learning and they develop wisdom and they apply it to another domain. So for example, we did a study with our Unwinning Anxiety app with anxious physicians, right? Another epidemic where there's an epidemic of burnout. And we looked to see if we could reduce anxiety. We could, 57% reduction within three months. And we also threw in some burnout measure questions to see if that would generalize. And we actually got a 50% reduction in callousness, basically, one of the main domains of burnout, because people were learning to work with the individual aspects of burnout. Now, there's certainly institutional aspects that you know, you can't fix with an app, but it might free up some energy for people to advocate for institutional change, which would be great. Because that's one thing that we physicians, you know, we get stuck in the the day to day to the point where we're too exhausted to advocate for change, and then we're stuck in the you know in the system. So here that we see this generalized, and I see this individually in my patients, where they learn that being kind to themselves feels better than being mean, you know, beating on themselves, being mean to themselves. So it is not domain specific. We see evidence of this all the time, and it's beautiful to witness where somebody goes in through the doorway of a pain point, whether it's smoking or overeating or stress eating or anxiety, and they come out you know, much wiser where they can apply this to all sorts of things, you know, and they start to realize how many habits are not serving them. And then they can let go of them much more easily because they've got the skills. They've learned how their mind works and they're working with their minds. Right. But this mindfulness or attention paying or curiosity. I mean, it's, it's, it's somewhat fragile, right? And in particular, it seems fragile in the presence of, of stress, right? In the presence of, of anxiety. You talked about in your early career where you were experiencing some anxiety and, you know, you attributed it to an infection. I mean, I, I went through a similar thing. I, I was reading this and I, I remember going through exactly the same thing where I was in, in a situation where I had some family problems and some work problems and I was convinced that I had, I was in, you know, had some pathogen. Right. And so I, you know, I went to all these doctors. I was like, you know, you got to figure out what pathogen it is. And, and, you know, one was like, you know, have you ever thought you were like anxious? And I was like, Oh, this person's accusing me of being a malingerer, you know, <laughs> like, you know, and, uh, and uh, then once I found some way of, you know, managing that through changing my lifestyle and so forth, it went away. And it really dawned on me that a lot of people aren't, even aware of the stress and anxiety that they may be experiencing. I absolutely agree. You know, when I wrote the Unwinding Anxiety book, I talk about my, you know, at the end of college, wanting to blame this on some physical thing. I had irritable bowel syndrome and it'd be great if I could just take an antibiotic and it would go away. And cause I was convinced it sounds very similar. You know, I was convinced I was like, Oh, I did a lot of backpacking in college. Maybe I didn't purify my water well enough. Maybe I got Jardia, you know? And so it made sense because my brain, you know, and, and the doc asked me like, you think you're stressed? I'm like, no, I'm a vegetarian. I run, I play the violin. <laughs> right. You know, I can't be. And he's like, okay. You know, he's like, case <laughs> in point, you know, he didn't say that he was nicer than that, but you know, he's like, well, proof that you are, you can't even see it. You're so caught in it. And that's what a lot of us find when we are able to step back say, oh, wait a minute, this, this is anxiety that's just manifesting in a certain way for me. Well, I mean, you, you, you talk about curiosity as, as a hack that's available to everybody, but you also talk about how, you know, mindfulness 
is, is really quite hard. And when you want to become a little more serious about it, and, and you talked about how when you went on, you know, your meditation retreat, you know, your long haul meditation retreat, how it was really, really, really difficult to overcome those first couple of days where the, the background noise in your, in your mind was kind of driving you crazy. So is it a hack that's available to everyone in, in small doses, but then, you know, you really have to, is it like everyone can kind of jog a little bit, but if you really want to be a, a Olympian athlete, you got to do a lot of training. So here, when I first started going on these long silent meditation retreats, I was taking a Western centric approach to mindfulness, which was, you know, okay, the instruction is pay attention to your breath. When your mind wanders, bring it back. And so I would just kind of try to force myself to pay attention. And it was exhausting. You know, by day three of my first retreat, I was crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of the retreat manager. You know, like that's how, and I'd, I'd sleep every, every break we got, you know, I'd take a 15 minute nap just to try to refresh. And, and this is after you've been, this is after you've been meditating for a while, right? Yeah. I'd been meditating a couple of years and, you know, it was largely through what I think a lot of people experience, which is, oh, follow the instruction, just follow the instruction, follow the instruction. So it took me a number of probably seven more years. So I've been practicing about 10 years at this point, continually beating my head against the meditation wall before I realized that I was actually approaching it in a way that's, that's antithetical to the practice. The practice is not about any type of effort. You know, some describe it as, I don't want this to sound too like much like a koan, but like effortless effort. What does that mean? So if you think of it this way, curiosity, you know, just curiosity, when you're curious about something, does it take any effort to be aware when you're curious? I mean, I'm asking you. Well, in my case, I have difficulty shutting down the curiosity. Um, yeah. okay. that's, that's my, that's my big problem. I would guess it doesn't feel like a lot of effort when you're curious about something you're naturally drawn in. That's certainly my experience. That's most people's experience, especially when it's the interest curiosity, not the deprivation curiosity. That can be a little bit exhausting, you know, where it's like, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're that dog, you know, with the squirrel, you know, constantly getting pulled this way or that way. Interest curiosity, I think of it as more of the journey than the destination. You know, if deprivation curiosity is about getting a piece of information, we're at the destination, we've scratched that itch. Interest curiosity is just about the joy of discovery. And so if we bring curiosity to each moment, and especially if we bring it into looking to see when we're caught up in something and just being curious about that. You know, we talked about craving a little bit ago. That in itself is, it's not only not exhausting, it's, it's, uh, let me phrase it differently. It's energizing because we're curious, but it also feeds forward because it helps us see, helps us really learn how our minds work. And we can see these patterns of our mind that in itself is also energizing. So when I started shifting my approach to kind of a curiosity based, and this is also, this is all back in the Buddhist psychology, like this is described in the you know, seven factors of awakening and all these early texts, they talk about being interested and you can translate that as being curious, right? Or open-minded that's energizing. And when I started applying that, it was a game changer. And in fact, I took all of that learning and said, well, can we, let's develop our apps based on this approach rather than saying, okay, you should meditate. I'm going to guide you through some meditation. 
if you don't know why you're meditating, if you don't know what the concept is behind understanding how your mind works, then it's you, you're just taking this Western brute force approach like I've been taking for 10 years. So it's really about can we just cultivate the curiosity? And I would say that's available to anyone. It's, you know, children are wonderful at, at showing, demonstrating curiosity. We as adults, sometimes we forget that this is a superpower almost that we have. But when we start exploring it, it's delicious. You know, it's like, oh, more, 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 like, like you might have been alluding to. That's available to anyone. And if we take that curiosity approach, mindfulness training becomes it's a different ball game you know it's not this effortful gotta force this type of thing it's like oh let me be curious right now you know and we can do it moment to moment we don't even have to be sitting down or doing some formal walking meditation we can be doing it at any moment now you you reference a lot of neuroscience and a lot of the neuroscience has come out of your your lab, right? Where in particular, you're interested in the activity in the PCC kind of tracks things like flow and meditation and mind wandering and, and so forth. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this because, you know, my understanding of the PCC is that it's kind of like engaged when you need to override the, the autopilot, so to speak, right? I mean, that's, that's usually what people, I think some people describe that as one of the roles uh, <laughs> of this, this part of the brain. But, you know, you, you emphasize the, the benefits or at least those states of mind when the PCC activation is, is low. And you also point to a potential future where we might be able to, you know, use neurofeedback to kind of learn how to manipulate our attentional states, right? I think that I would be cool to look forward to that day when you could kind of look at the dial and, and then you could use reinforcement learning in that way to kind of develop new habits. But, but could you talk a bit about what exactly is the role of this part of the, the brain in these different attentional states? Yes, we've been studying it for over a decade now, so I'll keep it brief. And um, we actually have a video. Anderson Cooper came in and tried out our neurofeedback for a piece for 60 minutes. So I think it's on the Dr. Judd website if somebody wants to watch that. But basically, the posterior cingulate seems to be activated when we're caught up in our experience. So if we're caught up in mind wandering, if we're caught up in a craving, if we're worrying about the future, all of those activate the default mode network. And in particular, the posterior cingulate as a hub of that network is one of the main kind of cores aspects of the brain. Over 10 years ago, we published our first study with experienced meditators where we just looking across the entire brain, you know, trying to take an agnostic approach. And we actually found that the posterior cingulate was deactivated in experienced versus novice meditators. And this correlated with a reduction in mind wandering, which, you know, makes sense because when somebody's concentrated, their mind is wandering less. We've gone on to do a bunch of neurophenomenologic studies where we can actually link up people's subjective experience with their brain activity in real time. This is kind of what Anderson Cooper did. And we could dial it in to find that the posterior cingulate seems to be this marker of being caught up, right? So I say that casually, but it was actually years and years and lots of lots of research to kind of dial into what that was, what it, what it's a marker of. And that makes sense because when we're caught up in anxiety, we're closed down, we're contracted. When we're caught up in a craving, you know, they, they share that phenomenal feature. So here, curiosity as a marker of mindful awareness, when we're curious, that 
activity decreases. And so this could be a marker as a neurofeedback device to help people see what it feels like when they're getting caught up in their experience and what it feels like when they're not so that they can really calibrate their own experience. And so the best devices from a public health perspective are ones that are so efficient that they're designed to be deleted. You know, we're trying to actually develop our apps that way as well, where we want people to learn so much so quickly that they don't need, they're not dependent upon the app. And in the same way, the neurofeedback could help people calibrate what it feels like to get caught up in their experience. And sometimes this can be subtle, we're not even noticing it. And also what it feels like to let go. And so I gave a TEDx talk on flow where I showed an example of one of our experienced meditators getting this neurofeedback and, and having that brain activity in the posterior cingulate just bottom out when they were, she self-described being in flow uh, during the study. study. It wasn't even a study on flow. So that's, that's the posterior cingulate in a nutshell where it can be a neurobiologic mechanism. We've even found that we can target that with our smoking cessation app, our craving to quit app specifically targets that, you know, as compared to the National Cancer Institute's app. And so mechanistically, we know that this correlates with reductions in cigarettes, for example, cigarette smoking. With app-based mindfulness training program, we see this in experienced meditators. We can even see this in novice meditators, where in, in as few as nine minutes, they're flipping their posterior cingulate from, you know, like there was a person that I remember saying, you know, is thinking about my breath and there it was it was activated. And then they shift from that to like truly feeling the physical sensations of breathing, right? And that was a game changer. The, the posterior cingulate flipped from being active to being deactivated in nine minutes. That third, three, six, nine, the fourth run that they did only four minutes of four times three minute meditation. They did three minute blocks of meditation, of feedback. And within the three blocks, they had learned something really critical within nine minutes. That's pretty powerful. The technology, I'll say, for folks saying, well, there's neurofeedback available now. There isn't neurofeedback available for the posterior cingulate in, you know, if you go and buy some commercial headset. So this is like $80,000 EEG and, you know, million dollar fMRI equipment. But hopefully down the road, in the next few years, those types of practices and, and technologies will be available. In the meantime, I would say we all can just start exploring our own experience. What's it feel like to get caught up in something, whether it's a craving or in worrying? And what's it feel like to be curious? You know, the curiosity helps point us in that other direction. And then it's all about rinse and repeat. What's it feel like when you're caught up? How rewarding is that? You know, and what's it feel like when you let go? How rewarding is that to our brains? It's a no brainer. Yeah. So last question, how excited are you about the kind of future of medicine? Because medicine for, I think, most of the 20th century kind of boxed itself in, in terms of the the domains in which it covered and the the, the ailments which it, it tracked. And I was wondering if you, if you think that medicine is now at a place where it can start thinking more broadly about the human condition and also in terms of the the remedies, right? So I think it's always prioritized things that, you know, you can have a reimbursement code for, right? Whether it's a, a pharmacological intervention or, you know, some kind of uh, surgical intervention, right? It's hard to get reimbursement when you tell somebody to meditate or to exercise, right? As a doctor, even if that turns out to be the most effective therapy, it's hard to get funding to research these types of interventions because they, they lack patent protection and so forth. So do, do you think, are you confident that, you know, medicine will kind of redefine itself to incorporate 
the, the broader human experience and, and to think about social media, say, as, as a pathogen, right? Well, the CDC start to think about it's expanded its purview to include gun violence, right, as an infectious cause of death. Can, can, we, can we start to think about, you know, social media, let's say, and other kinds of environmental cues, you know, Doritos and so forth as kind of environmental hazards? So I would say large systems change slowly. And so I'm moderately enthusiastic, but I wouldn't wait for the large systems to pave the way for change. They tend to adopt things that work and adopt them slowly. I don't know if the average number of, of years between innovation to adoption was something like 17 for, you know, to get actually get reimbursed from CMS, you know, for the, the Medicare or Medicaid entity that kind of drives reimbursement for all the healthcare. So hopefully the large payer systems will actually try to find pathways to start taking a different mentality around change because they're very, very slow to change. And they're leaving dollars on the table, you know, because they, they care about profits because they're for-profit entities or even nonprofits, you know, they've got to care about the bottom line. So one, you've got to find an evidence-based therapeutic. We can, that innovation is happening faster. So that makes me optimistic. It still takes time to collect data and do good studies. So for example, with digital therapeutics, you know, I've laid out a couple of studies that we've done, but those have taken years and that's represents like half a percent of all the apps out there. Most of these, like the vast, vast, vast majority haven't been studied at all, despite what they claim. So for them, for the systems to change, hopefully there'll be some pressure for these large payers to say, Hey, we've got it. You know, we could save money here. We, we, let's look into this more. And, you know, they're pretty good at looking at evidence. So hopefully they can start driving change faster than it typically happens. But I would say, let's not wait for them. You know, we all can check for ourselves and learn. You know, I would say we all can learn how our minds work. We all can start developing curiosity and whether that's reimbursed or not, it's going to lead to better health. Well, I think you've addressed some of the fundamental philosophical issues of not just our time, but of all time, right? How should you live? And the books are Craving Mind, of course, and Unwinding Anxiety. Dr. Judd Brewer, check out the website and check out the apps. Thank you so much, Judd, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>